Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Romans chapter 5, um, and we've actually, we're going to finish off chapter 5 this morning. So the last two weeks, we've been in Romans chapter 5. And so this is kind of the third part of Romans 5, and this is the tail end, and we're going to finish that off. So um, before we finish it, I do want to recap just a little bit um, and uh, kind of share with you where we've been in chapter 5. So in verses 1 through 5 of Romans, the Apostle Paul kind of describes some of the benefits of justification. If you were with us two weeks ago, we went over the benefits that we have in Christ. Um, And those benefits were, in Christ, we have access to God. In Christ, we have peace with God. And in Christ, we have a future hope. We have joy in suffering And then in verses 6 through 11, which was last week, Paul then moves on to talk about the love of God and what makes God's love so unique, what makes God's love um, so extraordinary, what, what makes his love so special and so different than anything that we've ever experienced or imagined. And if you remember, those qualities were the things that make God's love extraordinary is who he loves. He loves sinners. He loves those that hate him. Um how he loves. How does he love those that hates, hates him? He, he loves them by laying his life down for them. And then when does he love? He doesn't love you at your best, but he loves you at your absolute worst. And so the question is, is if God loved you when you hated him, how much more, or, or how could you, not how much more, but how could you ever doubt his love for you now? If he loved you at your worst when you were an enemy of God, then now that you are his and you belong to him, why do you doubt his love for you. And so his love is extraordinary because of who he loves, how he loves, and when he loves. And finally, today in verses 12 through 21, we'll finish chapter five. Paul's going to kind of break down the logic of justification by faith, God's divine logic. What's the logic behind justification by faith? A lot of times, many of us think that being a Christian is illogical, or believing the Bible, you have to be some of us in here, maybe even today, you're still a skeptic. Maybe you consider yourself someone who doesn't believe in God because it's illogical. I want to tell you that the scriptures is very logical and that God's salvation, there is salvation, there is logic to his salvation. And so hopefully we can break that down for you this morning. Um, because the text is really repetitive today, um, and you're going to see that when I read it, and, and it's a little dense, to be honest. Um, I want to equip you with some understanding before we jump in. So again, the text is going to be real repetitive and it's going to be a little dense. And so I want to kind of equip you with some understanding before we jump in. So if you don't mind, I guess what I kind of want to do is maybe take you to school for the first. There we go. Um, anybody else like to go to school? Maybe not a lot. Yeah. Anybody, anybody do well in school? Anybody here would say like, hey, I kind of like school. Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Right. Okay. There's about five of you. The rest of you don't. Okay, maybe not a good idea. I'll remember that the next time I'm preparing for a message. But um, we're going to go to school a little bit, which means uh, I'm going to take you to seminary for a moment. And we're going to define some terms. Yeah. yeah. Terms. So are you a note taker? Any note takers in the building? 
Can you just wave at me so I feel better? I'll just look at you guys and know that if you're into it, that's great. The rest of you guys, and just enjoy your donuts. And, um, and I promise we'll, um, we'll make sure that you're involved too. So we are going to actually define the terms before we actually get into um, the, the text. Uh, so the first term is a bit of a review. And um, the first term is the word justification, right? We are justified by faith. And so what does it mean to be justified? What does justification mean? And again, this is review. This is something that we've went over in the past. But basically, justification is a legal term. It's a legal term. It's it's a term that's used in the court of law. It means acquittal. Basically, what it means is it means to be declared right, to be declared right before God, to be declared not guilty before the Lord. Now, when you think of justification, you think of the idea of being declared right before God. There's a problem, right? And here's the problem. How can sinful people be made right in the eyes of a holy God? How could any of us in this room who are sinful be declared right in the eyes of a holy God? How is that possible? And so that leads us to our next term. And again, this is another review. So justification is a legal term and it means to be made right. The next term is this. It's imputation. Imputation. Now, justification is a legal term. Imputation is an accounting term. Any accountants in the room? Anybody like numbers in the room at all? Having a real bad time with these hand raises. (laughs) Um, And so imputation is an accounting term. And here's what imputation means. It means to apply to one's account. To apply to one's account. So think of it this way. Expenses are debited and income is credited. There we go. Good job. Knew you guys were going to get that. So imputation is an accounting term, right? And it means to apply to the account. Expenses are debited and I'm sorry. Here we go. Expenses are debited and income is credited. Much better. Very good. Yes. Finally, number three, the third term that I, well, not finally, but the third term I want to get to is the idea of double imputation, Double imputation. Um, So within justification, there is a double imputation taking place. What does that mean? Well, first, our sins are debited to Christ's account. So somebody's asked you, how are you saved? How are you made right in the eyes of God? You're a sinner and God is holy. And so how is that even possible? Well, you are saved by double imputation. Two two imputations take place. The first one is this. Your sins are debited to Christ's account. And second, Christ's righteousness is credited to yours. And and in other words, on the cross, Christ was treated like a sinner so that sinners will be treated like Christ. On the cross, Christ was treated like a sinner, punished the wrath of God fully upon him. So that you, the sinner, would be treated like Christ. Now, that's the gospel. Now, if you put all of these terms together, we are justified by double imputation. We are justified by double imputation. Now, how has God made that all possible? Um, How does this kind of, I guess you want to call it divine bookkeeping, how does that divine bookkeeping really take place? Like, what's the nuts and bolts and the logic behind it? And this is why I really love the Apostle Paul, because he's really breaking down the logic of our salvation. How does this all actually work? And, and this brings us to our fourth term, and this is 
this will be a new term for everyone who's been following us. Um, God generally relates to mankind through covenant representation. And that's covenant representation is the term. Really not a term. It's two terms put together, covenant and representation. Um, So what's a covenant? A covenant is an agreement. A covenant is a contract made between two parties. And that's generally how how God deals with mankind. He deals with mankind in covenants. Um, And what is a representative? A representative is someone who's related, who is appointed to act on the behalf of another. A representative is somebody who is appointed to act on behalf of another. So let me just kind of pause and and just share this thought with you that might be a little surprising, um, but I think it's really important. Well, I know it's really important for us to understand. Um, Not only has God already made a covenant with us, but he's also appointed someone to act within that covenant on our behalf. So according to the scripture, not only has God already made a covenant with mankind, but he's already appointed someone to act on it on our behalf. So did you know right now, you sitting in this room, you're under covenant with God. Whether you, know, whether, whether you have said anything or not, you are right now, all of us in this room have a covenant with God. And guess what? Somebody has already acted on your behalf. Pretty fair? A few of you might say fair. Some of you might find that not to be fair, right? In our very, like, individualistic society, our culture, where we do everything on our own, no one represents me, I do it myself. Um, You can't speak for me, I speak for myself. Sometimes it's difficult to understand the idea of representative, but it actually happens everywhere. We do this in politics, don't we? Right? You guys with me? I need to talk back with me real way. We, 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 uh, we, <laughs> we cast our vote for a representative. That representative is then speaking on our behalf. Now, sometimes they don't always speak on our behalf, and sometimes you want to take your vote back, right? Um, but, but that's how it works. And so we see this all the, t- all the time happening in politics. We see this in sports. Any athletes in here? I've so far I've gotten not a lot of love today. Anybody play any sports? Believe it. Once upon a time, okay, there's about four of you. Thanks for raising your hands. You guys are doing great. Um, really making me feel good right now. Believe it or not, at one time um, I did play sports. I played basketball for a little bit, and um, I remember when I played basketball. Um, in particular, we had a coach at the end of practice. Well, I think a lot of coaches do this. They line you up and, and um, line you along the baseline, and you always knew what was coming. Um, you were going to run. And because, you know, my team wasn't really exceptionally strong or skilled or tall um, <laughs> or any of those things, um, we were going to be really conditioned. Like, like, if you can't outplay, like, if you can't skillfully outplay, then you're going you're gonna to run them out till, till they're tired. And so... Um, so, of course, that just meant that we were running nonstop. And so after practice, we would run, and that would happen kind of normally. But every once in a while, coach would line us up on the baseline, and we would all be prepared to run. But then he would choose somebody from the team. And he would basically say this, hey, shoot a free throw. You're going to shoot a free throw, and if you sink both, you guys don't have to run, right? And everyone would get excited, depending on who the person would pick, right? <laughs> And, uh, and, of course, you know, Coach, if he wanted to have fun, he'd pick the worst free throw shooter on the team. Um, but most of the time, it was a pretty good free throw shooter. The worst part was when you pick the best free throw shooter and the dude misses. Like, that's always worse than that happens. Um, 
But the whole idea was if he sunk these free throws, you wouldn't have to run. Now, regardless of whether or not he made the free throws, um, no matter what the outcome was, like the, because we were teammates, um, we accepted the outcome. And uh, that's the whole idea of representation is that somebody related to you, somebody who is appointed from within you to go out and represent you. And whatever the outcome is, you accept that because that was the one that was chosen on your behalf. And so I just kind of want to repeat what I said a little bit earlier, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into Romans. Um, not only has God already made a covenant with you, but he's already appointed someone to act on your behalf. Somebody has already acted on your behalf, whether you like it or not. So now let's find out what that looks like. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I need you. We need you in this room. I just pray that your word wouldn't come back void. I pray that your gospel would be clear. And I pray, um, Lord, that at the end of today's message, that you would get all the glory. And if there's anybody in here wondering if you love them, if there's anyone in here wondering what you've done for them, if there's anyone in here wondering what can be done for them, I pray that they would understand through your word. And so, Lord, I love you. I ask that you would be with me. You would strengthen me. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all ready for this? Let's do it. Romans 5, 12 through 21. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. If you have your apps, you can open up there. If not, we'll put it up for you on the screen as well. All right, scripture reads like this. Verse 12. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more had the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one's man trespasses, Death reigns through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous." Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. That's a lot. That's repetitive <clears throat> and a little dense, and that's okay. Um, we're going to kind of break down what Paul is talking about. And these kind of final nine verses of chapter five, 
Paul does something really incredible. Um, he condenses all of scripture and he condenses the complexities of salvation, justification into two covenants, two men and one choice. Two covenants, two men and one choice. Now, the first covenant if you're taking notes, it's called the covenant of works. Now, remember we said this, God generally deals with man in covenants. And so the scripture, all of scripture, Genesis to Revelation can really be broken down into two covenants. Now, within those two covenants, there are other covenants that have been made, but two overall covenants can be broken down. All of scripture can be labeled under these two. The first one is called the covenant of works. And that covenant has a representative head. That covenant has somebody who represents all of humanity in, under that covenant. And so the first one is the covenant of works. And according to Apostle Paul, the representative of that covenant is the man, Adam. The first man, Adam. Now, let me explain this covenant of works to you. This was the original agreement God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Y'all remember that story in Genesis. Now, in this agreement, God related to Adam based off of his works or based off Adam's ability to obey him at his word. If Adam obeyed, Adam would be blessed. But the consequences of his disobedience would be death. Not just a physical death, but also a separation from God, a spiritual death. Now, you all know the story. You know that ultimately Adam disobeys God and ultimately sin enters into the world. And as a result, so comes death. Now, Paul point, Paul's point is not that Adam sinned and died, but that Adam represented all of humanity. And Paul's point here in Romans chapter 5 is this, is that in Adam... All of humanity sinned and died. His point is not just that Adam sinned and died, but in Adam, all of humanity sinned and died. One commentator wrote this. To Paul, Adam was more than a historical individual, the first man. He was also what his name means in Hebrew, humanity. The whole of humanity is viewed as having existed in Adam. So inside of Adam, all of us existed. And so when Adam sinned, Adam just didn't sin, but he sinned on behalf of all of us. This is the idea of covenant representation. This is the understanding of covenant representation. Now, I want to pause and just kind of go over maybe some practical implications from this idea um, concerning this covenant of works. Let me give you some practical implications that I think really should influence and affect as Christians how we view the world, our worldview. Um, the first one is this. Every person is born guilty. Right? Every person is born guilty of Adam's sin. So the next time your little baby gets on your nerves, I want you to know that little baby's guilty of sin. <laughs> Just look at that baby and be like, you are a sinner. <laughs> it's okay, parents. I know everyone saw you. Right? Uh, I know a lot of people would, would, would like to believe that a, a baby is pure and sinless, but babies are born guilty of Adam's sin. No human is born good or neutral. Did you know that? And that's another thing that I see sometimes uh, we have worldviews that are out there that humanity is basically what? Good. Right? That's a worldview that's out there. And I, I, even a lot of Christians believe that to be true. But 
Um, if a Christian understood what Paul was writing, actually, you can't say that at all. We are all born guilty of sin. There is nobody who is born good or neutral. Um, because Adam's sin, and here's a key word, was imputed to us, we all have an inclination towards rejecting God and loving sin from the very beginning. That's one implication. Here's a second implication. Adam was a real historical figure, according to the Apostle Paul. There are also a lot of Christians out there who would actually lead us to believe that eh, we don't have to necessarily take Genesis literal. Have you heard that before? There are some out there that would say we don't have to take it literal, that it can be some sort of allegorical or even folklore Christianity story that kind of teaches you some basic ideas about who God is, but you don't have to take it literal. But that's not so for Paul. That's not so for Paul. According to Romans 5, if you deny a historical Adam, then you deny fundamental truths about the gospel and our salvation. And by the end of this sermon, you'll understand what I mean by that. And here's what I want you to note. And I've said this earlier. There are movements out there that would suggest that we can do away with some of the more unbelievable passages of Scripture and still retain its meaning and value. But we have to be very careful. I'm going to tell you why. Removing small threads will ultimately unravel our faith. And so what you remove out of Genesis, ultimately you're going to remove from your salvation. And, um, and as, as I explain further, you're going to understand why you don't want to do that. Are you with me? Third implication. Uh, sin is a lot deadlier than we realize. Um, have you ever read The Fall of Man and thought, man, it was just like a fruit and a tree, right? <laughs> like, uh, all he did was eat a fruit, God. Like, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, he just saw that tree and thought it was good to eat, and it's just about fruits and trees. Maybe I'm the only one, or a few of you are laughing here. Really tough crowd this morning, but I love y'all. Um, right? I mean, I've read that, and I've thought to myself, like, you know, it's just fruits and trees. Like, what is the big deal? Um, but let me just say something about our sin. Don't we always kind of turn our sin into an act? Right? It, it, we always make sin about the act. It's about the behavior, right? Um, but I want, you to, I want you to know this. Sin is an issue of the heart before it's ever an issue of the hands, wow. the feet, or the eyes. Right? It's an issue of the heart. Like We really don't understand the reality or the impact of our sin. And so we downgrade it, don't we? We distance ourselves from it. We, and, and what we do is we, we try to turn it into an act because an act ultimately is outside of us, which means we can kind of get away from it, distance it, right? But the reality is sin, before it's ever an act, it's in the heart, which means sin is not on the outside, but sin is on the inside. Sin is on the inside. So what was it? Was it really just about a fruit and a tree and Adam, you shouldn't have ate that? It was about Adam's inability to trust God's direction for his life. It was about Adam's inability to trust God's direction for his life. Sin is us telling God, I don't need you. Like, I know better. I don't need you. I know better. Yeah, I know what your word says, but but your word doesn't satisfy me. So I'm going to do something contrary to your word because that makes me feel better. Right? Sin, what sin boils down to is an issue of the heart, an unwillingness to trust that what God has said is better for you than what you want to do for yourself. Sin is deadlier than we realize. And finally, number four, and I think this is my favorite one out of the four implications um, from this first thought is this. Um, because God created everything perfect, sin, death, and decay are unnatural. Do you know that? You know, according to the Christian worldview, 
death and decay are unnatural. Now, why is that maybe so revolutionary for some of us? Because a lot of people would just look at death and call that what? A regular part of life, right? Isn't it? I mean, things die. Haven't we even said that ourselves? Like everywhere you look, things die, things decay. Like that is a normal part of life. But if you're a Christian and a follower of Christ and a believer in, his, in the word of God, actually death, decay is not natural. That's not how it was made. That's not how we were made. We were not created to die. Did you know that? We weren't created to die. Death is a foreign invader that came to us from the outside. So what is death then? Death is only an indicator that something is broken. Death is an indicator that something is broken in this world. Something's not operating the way it originally intended to operate. Right? Even... even, the last week and a half, I had to battle some sickness, right? And the symptoms come, right? And when the symptoms come, it's not about the symptoms, but the symptoms are, are telling you that there's something wrong. There's a virus, right? And that's what death is. Death is the symptom of sin. And so as a Christian, we have a glorious hope, amen? Yes. What's our glorious hope? One day, death is going to be destroyed. Yes. One day, death will die. And what, and what sin has broken and what sin has corrupted and what sin has contaminated and what sin has decayed, yeah. God will make new again. Yeah. This is the glorious hope of Christianity. So when Adam fell, God immediately instituted a new covenant. Remember, two covenants, covenant of works. When Adam fell, God immediately instituted a new covenant. And this new covenant is called the covenant of grace. If you're taking notes, the covenant of works represented by the man, Adam, and then the covenant of grace represented by a new head and a man named Jesus. Now, Paul tells us in this new covenant of grace, Jesus literally succeeds everywhere Adam fails. Everything Adam couldn't do to fulfill his covenant with God, Jesus comes and fulfills and does before the Lord. Not only that, but everywhere Adam failed, Jesus succeeds. And everywhere Adam failed and he was under perfect conditions to do everything right, Jesus actually had to endure terrible conditions. Jesus undoes everything that Adam does. In this new covenant of grace, Jesus succeeds everywhere Adam fails. I'm going to give you three areas because that's what Paul does. Paul gives us three areas where this takes place. The first area is Adam disobeys God, but Christ obeys. Adam disobeys, Christ obeys. Now, you'll hear Paul mention in other places, he refers to Jesus as the last Adam. Right? In fact, he'll even mention here, and I forget what verse it is, but he calls Adam a type of the one to come, a type of the one to come. Right? And so Paul will refer to Jesus as the last Adam. Now, there's some really amazing parallels, too many to go through right now, but I'm just going to share with you a few just so your mind can be blown a little bit and so you can understand what I mean by Jesus obeying where Adam disobeyed. See, the first Adam was placed in a garden and given a command regarding a tree. You remember what that command is? Like, don't eat. 
right? The last Adam, right, we find also in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, and he's given a command regarding a tree too. But this Adam was told to die on that tree, right? And so the first Adam disobeys, the last Adam obeys. The first Adam, God said, obey me and I'll bless you. The last Adam, God said, obey me and I'll crush you. The first Adam, he said, obey me, don't eat of this tree and I'll bless you. The last Adam, he said, obey me, go die on that tree and I'll crush you with my wrath. I want you to see this. The first Adam in paradise with every reason to obey doesn't. The last Adam facing the cross with every opportunity to disobey, obeys. And so Jesus is doing what Adam couldn't do. And Jesus is undoing what Adam did. Let me, let me put it like this. Let, let, um, a lot of times when we think about this one act of obedience that Paul is talking about, we think about the cross. And that's what is Paul is talking about. But Jesus' whole life was an act of obedience. You know that Jesus lived a perfect life. Sinless, spotless, pure, perfect. And in looking at the cross, there's also something else that I think we forget to look at when comparing Adam and Jesus, the temptation. Do you remember Jesus was baptized? And the scripture said that the spirit led him into the wilderness where he was fasting for 40 days. Can you imagine that? Not eating for 40 days. And he's led into the wilderness and Satan himself meets Jesus in the wilderness to tempt him. And you remember, he tempts him three times in three different ways. And each time, using the scriptures, Jesus overcomes the temptation. And you know what's really cool? Scripture tells us that as soon as he overcomes the temptation and he kind of walks out of the wilderness, he starts preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Why does he do that? Why does he say the kingdom of God is here? Well, he says that he declares that because, because what's really, what he's really saying is this. Never before in the history of humanity has somebody ever told Satan no. How powerful is that? Never before in the history of humanity has Satan ever lost a battle. Satan was completely undefeated. I don't know how many people had come since Adam to him. Millions. I mean, imagine a record like that. He was undefeated. The undisputed champion. Never been beaten. All of a sudden, Jesus Christ on a fast in the wilderness. Satan says, turn this to bread. I know you can do that. Throw yourself off of this cliff and let everyone see you so that everyone would worship you. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Never before has anybody ever turned down Satan's offers, has ever been able to look at Satan one-on-one and beat him, but yet Jesus did. The reason why Jesus was able to say the kingdom of God is here is at hand because he was saying, look, one has come that has been able to say no to Satan. And so... Jesus obeys where Adam disobeys. Second, Scripture tells us that Adam's disobedience brought condemnation. Brought condemnation. But Christ's obedience brought justification. Justification. In other words, in the same way we were made guilty because of Adam's imputed sin, we can also now be made right because of Christ's imputed righteousness. That's important. In the same way that you and I were made guilty 
according to Adam's imputed sin, is the same way now that we could be made righteous according to Christ's imputed sin, um, imputed righteousness. Now, here's the key. This is the logic of our justification. And I'm so glad God did it this way. And let me explain. I want to go back a little bit. Remember, like, have you ever complained, like, that's kind of unfair, God, right? Like, why Adam did one thing wrong? You know, Adam made the mistake. I didn't make the mistake. Like, why are we all paying for it? Like, thanks, Adam, right? Like, like wait till we get to, we see Adam. You know what I mean? <laughs> right? Imagine just, the, just millions of people just looking at Adam. You know what I mean? Like, and those are people in heaven, right? <laughs> like, Adam, we almost didn't do it because of you, man. Right? I mean, I mean, it's unfair. Like, why does Adam have to represent me? Right? I mean, that's the typical kind of Sunday school complaint when people learn about this. But there's a problem with that complaint. In fact, there's two problems with that complaint. Um, and let me, explain, let me explain to you what those are. Number one, if Adam doesn't represent you, then you represent yourself. Imagine Adam being like, mm-hmm, all right, well, what about you? How well did you do when that fruit came, huh? Let me, let's look at your life. Every decision you ever made. Like, did you ever walk away from God? Did you ever not trust the Lord? Did you ever look away from his word? Right? If I was Adam, I'd have a field day up there. Right? So here's, here's one problem with that complaint is, if not Adam, then it's going to be you representing yourself. Right? And you didn't do any better. But here's the second one, second part to that, and this is critical. If you refuse the principle of covenant represent, representation, um, you're not only taking things into your own hands, but you're also denying the opportunity for Christ to represent you. And so if you're going to accept one, you have to accept them both. If you're going to deny one, then you have to deny them both. That's how God did it that way. That's why God, if you want Christ to represent you, you also must come to terms with the reality that Adam's sin is in your life. You can't have one without the other. This is how imputation works. In fact, we need imputation in order for us to be perfect because it's impossible for any of us to be perfect. Are you with me on that? Finally, through Adam, death reigned, but through Christ, life reigned, right? We identify with Adam in sin. And this is how we identify with Adam in sin. We're human. We're part of the human race. In Adam, we all were. And so when he sinned, we sinned. We're born into sin. But we also identify with Adam every day that we choose not to obey the word in our own lives. But we can also identify with Christ by faith. We can identify with Christ by faith. You see, from this last Adam, a new birth takes place. Isn't that crazy? So the first Adam, we're born into sin. In this last Adam, we can be born to a new life. We're made a new creature in Christ. A new birth takes place. A new creature is formed, and we are no longer subject to sin and death. Those of us who are in Christ, Paul tells us we're crucified with Christ. When Christ died, you died. When Christ took on the full wrath of God, he took on that wrath that was waiting for you. When Christ was crucified, you were crucified. When he died, we died. And if we, he died and we died with him, guess what? When he rose, 
will rise too. Those of us who are in Christ are crucified with him. We die daily to the flesh. We die daily to our passions, our desires, our wants, our sin nature. We sacrifice. We're crucified with Christ. And this is so important. So important for us to understand. The covenant of grace, I want you to know, doesn't lower the bar of sin. A lot of times, a lot of Christians believe that we're under grace now, and so my sin doesn't matter anymore, right? And you become, um, we have legalists. You know what a legalist is? That's somebody who has rules for everything, right? A legalist is, all, there's no, can't do that, can't do that. That's a sin, that's a sin, that's a sin. They can't watch TV, that's a sin, right? <laughs> Talked about the 49ers today at church, that's a sin. I'm leaving, not coming back to this, right? Legal, everything is wrong, everything's wrong, everything's a sin, everything's a sin. It's like you can't enjoy yourself, right? But on the opposite end of that, we have people who are licensed, License. What does that mean? You could just get away with everything. Like, well, I'm under God's grace. Christ died. He forgave me. As a result, I can do whatever I want to do. I can make any decision I want to make. And I know it's kind of funny, but we have a lot of people in the church today that are on both those sides. We have legalists sitting in the building this morning. Maybe, I don't know, maybe not in this church. Right? But they sit in the building and, and, and over scrutinize and judge everything. Right? But then we also have others that are in the building as well, right? Coming every Sunday, you're covered by his grace, you leave, and you're totally in sin. Unrepented sin. Continual sin. And so the church lives in, the, in some of the church lives in these two worlds, and both of those worlds will be judged. I want you to know that just because, just because grace is free, it's not cheap. But we live our lives as if the blood of Jesus is cheap. I want the grace of God doesn't lower the bar of sin. The standard never changed, y'all. Why do you change it? The standard never changed. Yeah. Yeah. L- listen, absolute perfection is demanded by a holy God. In this covenant, God didn't lower the standard. He just meets that standard in Christ. He meets it in Christ. Christ lived absolutely perfect. To take this to mean that we can now live however we want, that we have the freedom to be careless with God's grace is to completely miss the mark. Let me tell you something about grace, the gift of God, grace, this free gift that he gives to us. Grace is not an enabler allowing us to live however we please. Anybody know any enablers in here? Maybe you've been an enabler, you've been in an enabling situation, right? You enable somebody in their issue and their addiction, you always talk about, we talk about people who are, who are addicts. A lot of times next to them, there's an enabler. There's somebody that's kind of empowering them, giving them money, allowing them to continue to wander into their addiction. It's an enabler. Grace is not an enabler, allowing you to live however you please. Grace is an empowerer. Grace empowers us to live as new creatures and empowers us to live as new creatures, no longer represented by the first Adam but now represented by Christ. Can I just tell you something about the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace? Once you get an understanding of the beauty of Jesus and what he's done for you, and once you put your faith and trust in him, that grace comes over your life, and that grace doesn't enable you now to do whatever you want. It actually begins to empower you to walk differently. 
Everyone's like, everyone wants to know, like, what's the secret, right? What's the secret? Right? Books, what's the secret? What's the secret to a healthy life? What's the secret to a happy life? What's the secret to this life or that? What is the secret sauce of Christianity? It's amazing grace, the unexplainable spirit of God moving inside of you because you're responding to him in love and in that him empowering you to walk your life out differently than you walked it out before. Now, let me just say this. We never live in perfection, okay? We are strugglers walking this life together. We are all fellow strugglers, amen? We're all fellow strugglers in this room. But I will say this, is that when the amazing grace of God begins to move and flow in your life, your appetites change. Have you ever experienced a change in appetite? Maybe your taste buds have shifted a little bit. I think I might even have said this before in the past, but like I've noticed like onions have changed for me. Right, I did, yeah. Onions changed for me, right? A little grilled onion now doesn't, doesn't mess me up as much. And, you know, there's just different things that all of a sudden you get a little bit older, you're eating and you're like, okay, I can do that. I remember back in the day, I didn't do that. Your appetites change. Something used to kind of taste terrible to you, all of a sudden it tastes a little better. I'm going to tell you something, when the grace of God begins to move in you, an evidence, an evidence that God's grace is working, an evidence, ready, an evidence that God's grace is working is that appetites are starting to change. Appetites are starting to change. And what do I mean by appetites starting to change? Like you crave the things of God all of a sudden. Like, remember like you didn't want to go to church at all, right? Like going to church was the worst thing in the world. Some of you here are like, oh, I still feel that way. Well, you better get your appetites start changing a little bit. Maybe we got to work on your evidence, right? Like there's something deeper going on, right? Like if you don't love church, you want to know why you don't love church? Because you don't love Christ. And that's pretty hard just by the face. But, but, I, but this is the body of Christ. Like the scriptures, this is the body, right? And so your appetites change. Right, your appetites change. And so here's, you know, and, and I don't, this is not fear-mongering. This is, I just want you to know, I want your salvation to be true. But a lot of people are fooling themselves and pulling their wool over their eyes because they still, they still are hungry for the wrong things. If you want to know if somebody is in Christ, look at their appetites. What are they hungry for? What's your diet like? What are you feasting on regularly? Now, some of you in here are strugglers. I'm a struggler. Welcome to the party. But I'm going to tell you something. In your struggling, do you notice? Yeah, my appetites have been changing. Like, I, man, last year I don't desire. You know what I mean? Like, you start looking back and you realize, man, I, I am desiring things now that I never wanted to desire before. Like, now I love being with the body of Christ. Like, I never wanted to open up the Bible and read the scriptures. Like, this is, and when I did, it was kind of boring. And I, I had no appetite for that. All of a sudden, now... There's an appetite for it. And I may not understand it all the time. And I might not be perfect. And I might not be in my devotion every day. But you know what? Like, there's a hunger to know this. Appetites change. Appetites change. That's how you know that the grace of God is moving inside of you. And that's how you know that you're no longer represented by the first Adam. But you're represented by Christ. His life comes in you. His life transforms you. His life changes you. And all of a sudden, the things of God that you used to reject, deny, abandon, hate, you begin to love. Every single human being on this planet is either represented by Adam or Christ. Every human being on this planet is either represented by Adam or Christ. And so the big question is, as I invite the team up and we get ready to pray, so who, who's representing you? Who's representing you? 
Another question that we can add to that is, and how do I know? How do I know? And I feel like maybe to this morning, we have to pray over some appetites. Maybe, maybe you're here and saying, no, Philip, I really love Jesus, but I don't see my appetites changing, and I'm kind of nervous. What does that mean? So maybe we just need to start praying over your appetites. There's just some things that you are, have, you're hungry for, right? There's some, there's some fruit that you're still trying to bite of. The Lord has told you no. And we need to change those. And so the question might become today, how do I change my appetite, Phil? And I'm going to tell you something. You know why your appetites haven't been changed? Because you've been focusing on the appetite. Like, well, maybe if I just stop wanting this. That doesn't, that's not how it works. Like, you're not going to stop. You're not going to wake up overnight and just stop wanting sin. You were born into sin. Like, you, that's what you want. That's what you crave. So then the question is, Phil, well, how, how do I stop my appetites? You said it's not about my appetites, but you're talking about my appetites. What is it about? Well, take your mind off of your appetites and look at Jesus. The answer is receive the love of Christ in your life. The answer is look at the beauty of the cross. The answer is preach the gospel to yourself. Understand the beauty of the gospel. Receive forgiveness. Receive what Christ has done for you on the cross. That might be too simple for some of you. You guys want steps, instructions. Just tell me not how, to, how do I not do this? How do I get out? But the reality is there's some things that you can't control. Only the Holy Spirit can do in you. Yeah. And so we're going to get ready to take communion together. But before we take communion, communion is really important. And I'm going to explain it to you. When we take communion, we remember the blood and the body of Jesus that was broken for us. When we take communion... We remember the double imputation that took place. Like on the cross, my sin was placed on Jesus and he was disciplined for it. He was, he was punished for it. And his righteousness, his perfect, his perfection was placed on me so I could be treated like him. And so we come together as a church and we sacredly celebrate this moment together. How beautiful that is. But before we do it, we check ourselves. That's what Paul tells us. We, we take an inventory of our appetites. We take an inventory of our, what we've been craving and what we've been desiring, not so that we can feel condemned and say, well, I guess I'm disqualified from this, but so that we could repent and so that we can truly be thankful for what God, Christ did and finished on the cross for us on our behalf. And so as we get ready to take the communion together, I want to invite you, you don't have to be a member of Inspire, but you do have to be a follower of Christ to take communion. And so if you haven't given your life to Jesus, or if you feel like you've walked and wandered very far away, this is a very, very perfect time. It's a very apropos time, perfect time to give your life over to him and to repent and believe the gospel. So with every head bowed, just for a moment, let's just create a sacred space real quick. Let's create an altar in this room. There's anyone that feels far from Jesus, anyone feels far from God. There's anyone that feels like their appetites are totally outside of what, if you just feel like your appetites are totally outside of the realm of what would be marked as somebody who's been empowered by grace, I just... Would you just repent and, and would you just recognize that 
your love, would you just pray and ask that your love and your faith for Christ would just well up. God, I need to love you more than I love other things. I need to love you more than I love this world. And so wherever you're at right now, would you just take a moment with the Lord? God, change my appetites. I want to trust you. I want to trust you. You know better. You know better than I know for myself. Change my mind. Renew my mind. Wash my mind with your blood. Thank you. Come on, some of us in here just thank you. Thank you for, for dying. Thank you for living a sinless life, walking in this life pure, perfect. Thank you for taking my place on the cross. Thank you for taking on the full wrath of God, separation, death, so that I could live free, so that I could live at peace with God, so I could have access to God, so I could have a future hope, knowing that you're gonna make things new. So God, we love you as a church. We repent. As a corporate body, we repent. As individuals, we repent. We believe the gospel. Lord, we're just so thankful for the cross. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to sing a worship song. You're wild. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Inspire Churches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.